episode is in tandem with Snap It Back. It will discuss the economic ramifications of the cultural developments discussed in the previous episode. Last time, we discussed what I referred to as a rubber band effect. When we see big changes in demographics or in society, reactionary backlash is on the horizon. In the 1920s, people spent recklessly and lived lavishly. Women started to challenge antiquated standards of behavior, and age-old notions of what was true and right started to crumble. There was a lot of political action on the left and right alike, with anarchist bombings and a KKK resurgence. Woo. In the 2000s and 2010s, economic growth is big. We see less unemployment and decreased taxes. For some, thus, increasing spending all around. More and more positions of power are being filled by increasingly non-white and non-Protestant people. Minorities have seen landmark victories in the Supreme Court, and increased immigration has fostered a much more diverse America. But as good as this sounds, many political elites are not having it. The emergence of alt-right nationalist movements and the resurgence of neo-Nazi marches is a reminder of how much we have yet to go. Additionally, both periods saw the emergence of a mass culture, whether through movies or social media, and the definition of American is really up in the air. Is it mere coincidence that both periods of a big cultural change and seemingly never-ending economic growth ended in a big crash? What goes up must come down. Nineteen twenty. A new era seemed to be upon the American people as they elected a Republican candidate, Warren G. Harding. During the 1920s, the Republican Party focused on being as removed as possible from Americans' affairs. Its tenets included the deregulation of business, isolationism, and a reduction of foreign trade. We'll get into this in more detail in a later episode, but basically, people were over Wilson and his war and his idealism. They wanted something different and money to spend. People are so excited to be at peace and to spend everything they have saved up during nearly half a decade of conflict. People had been saving and scrounging, and they were over it. They wanted to be rich. Harding, true to his word, enabled businesses and markets to operate without regulation, hoping to kickstart the American economy and the people's morale as they entered the next decade. The growth of corporations and the wealth they amassed continued unchecked, thus encouraging more and more people to borrow and invest in things they felt would inevitably succeed. Hindsight allows us to see that these things were doomed to fail, but the fervor of the time rendered Americans blind and unwilling to consider the long-term effects of disproportionate investment. However, oligopolies, the dominance of a certain industry by a few businesses, are not solely to blame. Michalina Carbonara, one of my high school history teachers and an expert on this topic, asserts as much. She explains in a written interview that the aforementioned mass culture aided in this consumerism. We see the emergence of huge ad campaigns and commercials. Americans are hearing the same businesses and seeing the same stores on every block, and materialism quickly becomes ingrained in our identity. There is a new financial standard of what it means to be American, and businesses are taking advantage of it. These ads and campaigns are everywhere and are quickly convincing people they need things they don't. Businesses know what Americans are thinking. When you've had nothing for so long, 
Of course you want something that makes life more convenient. Additionally, the stock market is booming. Everyone who invests in it seems to get rich quick. This overspeculation and quick cash continues throughout the decade. It seems foolproof and everlasting, but it truly wasn't. And the crash was one that reverberated around the world. Now, a lot is going on here, so I asked Ms. Carbonara for the specifics on what exactly caused the Great Depression. Firstly, we've already talked a bit about this, but one of the main causes was the extensive stock market speculation that took place during the latter part of the decade. People were pumping lots of money into a precarious market. When it crashed, people who spent nearly all of their money on stocks were left penniless, with worthless pieces of paper. Another cause is the misdistribution of wealth in the 1920s. It existed on many levels. Money was distributed disparately between the rich and the middle class, between industry and agriculture within the United States, and between the U.S. and Europe. This imbalance of wealth created an unstable economy. Also, in the 1920s, in the U.S., the widespread use of home mortgage and credit purchases of automobiles and furniture boosted spending but created consumer debt. People who were deeply in debt when a price deflation occurred were in serious trouble. Even if they kept their jobs, they risked default. They drastically cut current spending to keep up time payments, thus lowering demand for new products. Another cause was a sharp decline in international trade after 1930. Countries did not have enough money to spend on foreign goods, so countries especially dependent on foreign trade were, for lack of a better term, screwed. Most historians and economists assign the American Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of 1930 part of the blame for worsening the Depression. This reduced international trade and caused nations to bicker with each other in trade through tariffs and other trickery. Foreign trade was a small part of overall economic activity in the United States, but American exports declined from about $5.2 billion in 1929 to $1.7 billion in 1933. The fourth cause was that oligopolies dominated American industries, meaning a small number of corporations owned most of the wealth. They kept prices high instead of relying on supply and demand. But everyone is so caught up in the opulence of the decade that they don't see the precariousness of it all. They want to be rich and milk the economy until it has nothing left. A similar pattern can be seen with the 2008 financial crisis. We already discussed similarities in culture, wanting to spend money, lots of growth occurring, and civil rights increases. But how does this relate to an economic crisis nearly 80 years later? The faith in the Bush administration and overspeculation in the housing market led to one of the worst recessions since the Great Depression. There was over-reliance on one sector. How did this happen? Featured on NPR's podcast, Planet Money, Scott Mather explains the causes of the crisis. What caused the crisis is, is too much debt and too much reliance on debt. And too much debt um, that has been used to fuel consumption and not used for productive investment. That's the, that's the problem. Alex Blumberg, 
a host of the podcast, continues this. And, and that was certainly the case. An extreme version of that was happening right before the crisis, which is you had a lot of borrowing happening and all the money that was borrowed was being funneled into this one sector of the economy, housing. People had lots of faith that this one sector of the economy would always grow, and banks funneled exorbitant amounts of money into that sector, raising mortgage rates for a profit that would disappear. Increased lending and lower interest rates drove prices for homes up and up. So when it came time for the banks or mortgage owners to sell these homes, no one could afford to buy them. Over time, with high supply and low demand, prices plummeted and homeowners were left with disproportionate mortgages. With this collapse, big financial institutions stopped buying these groups of mortgages, leaving lenders with worthless pieces of paper, much like the stocks during the Great Depression. Huge lenders were going bankrupt, and eventually, the housing and stock markets crashed. We could get into the very intricate specifics of the housing crisis, but this isn't an economics-focused podcast. If you want more information on the crisis itself, head to Planet Money's episode 436, Crisis Revisited. But I will get into some specifics just to give you some context. Crash Course Economics episode, the 2008 financial crisis, Crash Course Economics number 12, does an amazing job of explaining the crisis for a layperson's ear. So I'm going to paraphrase what I learned. First, we need to define mortgages. Basically, when people want to buy a house, they may take up a huge loan from a bank. In return, the bank gets a piece of paper called a mortgage. Every month, the homeowner needs to pay a portion of that loan back to the bank, plus interest. If the homeowner can no longer pay that money, that is called a default, and the bank gets the house, or whomever the bank sold that mortgage to. Mortgages used to be very hard to get, but once more investors poured money into the housing market because of favorable interest rates and started buying thousands of mortgages grouped together, lenders made it much easier to get a loan. There was a lot of demand for these groups of mortgages, and people thought that because having good credit was necessary to obtain a loan, there was no risk. To keep up with all of this demand, banks would make loans and demand interest rates that many lower-income people could not keep up with. Thus, leading to more and more defaults on mortgages. What I want you to pay attention to is that just like in the 1920s, where people put everything they had into the stock market, we see people here obsess over the housing market. Both the stock and housing markets in their respective times seemed to be the sure place to get quick cash. And when that growth stopped, people lost everything. They had poured their life savings into a market that no longer had any value. All of the money was essentially liquidated into pieces of paper that were now worth nothing. I do want to include this disclaimer before we start talking more specifically about current economics in that this episode was recorded and this research conducted before the COVID-19 pandemic, and therefore the events I'm talking about and projections do not have this in mind. Both the 1920s and 2010s also saw an increase in isolationist trade practices. One of the causes of the Great Depression was extremely high tariffs. Once countries experienced their own domestic economic turmoil, they could no longer afford to import goods from other countries. This further hurt the world economy because, as less foreign dollars were supplied for American goods, the American dollar became worth less and less. To protect their currencies, governments tried to make trade impossible. In the 2010s, such practices seemed to be continuing. 
Virginia Harrison asserts as such in her article, U.S. Economy Under Trump. Is it the greatest in history? The trade war with China, rising tensions in the Middle East, and fears over the health of the global economy have unsettled markets recently and led the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, to lower interest rates. The annual rate of growth in GDP, the value of goods and services in the economy, have generally been strong. However, in recent months, the index has been highly volatile, reflecting worries about the trade confrontation with China and a gloomier outlook for the global economy. More experts feel the same. Chuck Jones bolsters this in his article, Trump's Economic Scorecard, 18 months into his presidency. Unless the economy can consistently generate 3% or greater growth, the deficits will likely remain above $1 trillion. This is a tall order because the economy will slow or contract. Historically, we are overdue for this, and the deficit will balloon even higher. Sound familiar? In the 1920s, prices were rising faster than incomes, and eventually, people could not afford the goods they needed to survive. This increased borrowing and debt so much that eventually, people could not pay back their loans. This left banks with nothing and helped contribute to the Great Depression. Overborrowing also contributed to the crash of 2008. Lenders gave out mortgages to people that had no way of paying them back. Thus, when they defaulted, and the housing market ultimately crashed, banks were left with worthless loans once again. This slowing of economic growth was seen right before the crashes of 1929 and 2008, and looks like it may occur again under Trump. All right, but why does any of this matter? We see how current America is having a similar economic and cultural experience to the 1920s, but what does that even mean? The 1920s preceded one of the worst economic disasters ever, one that the United States did not recover from until after the Second World War. Violence against minorities increased, and the Republican Party took major hits that would not be rectified until after FDR's dynasty. This led to immense political party changes and demographic shifts, like the Great Migration, that persist today. We know the conditions that led to these drastic consequences, but what does seeing them again in current America mean? If our mindset and economic situations are fairly similar to that of the 1920s, does that mean that another Great Depression is on the horizon? With recent increases in hate crimes against Muslim Americans and minorities, will we see a similar rise in left or right political bombings? Will the potential realignment seen in the new blue wave movement and in Trump's election permanently change which areas of the country vote for which party? It's really dangerous to play the what-if game in history, so I don't want to make inane predictions. I'm pointing out these patterns because so often, catastrophic things occur in history and people simply cannot fathom where they came from. They came from the past. People are creatures of habit and their behaviors cycle as such. I am presenting these similarities because I want you to make your own decisions. Does history repeat itself? Or do people just continuously act the same? There are many confounding variables that make exact repetition impossible. But if we look at basic patterns, we might be able to plan potential contingencies and save ourselves from disaster. This has been Sing 2020, a deafening roar. And I'm Savan Ben-David. Special thanks to Veronica Bloomberg, Alexa Morrissey, and Rohan Chiraguri.